0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Modern Retail Podcast. I'm Kale Guthrie Weissman, the editor in chief here at Modern Retail. This week, I'm really excited. We have Chris McDonough, who is the CEO of Corksicle, which makes really nifty mugs that are sold in a variety of places and has some really cool partnerships with some of the biggest brands out there. And I want to dive into both dealing with retail partnerships, IP partnerships specifically, because I find that such to be such a fascinating space, and also just what it's like to be you know, a company that, that sells innovative cups. Um, but Chris, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, thank you, Kim. Delighted to join you today. Absolutely. So first, for those who don't know, uh, why don't you just give a little background about yourself? How did you get to be the CEO of Corksicle?
1: Uh, Well, first of all, I consider myself very fortunate to be the CEO of So It's a great entrepreneurial dynamic company, really about elevated and aspirational design in the kind of core hydration space, really. So I'm very blessed. I live in Orlando with my family. Uh, We've been here about a year and a half now as uh, I've been the CEO of School. And prior to that, I was the chief sales and brand officer at Wonderful Brand in Maine called L.L. Bean for, you know, close to uh, five years. And then prior to that, I lived and worked across different companies in Europe. So you can tell from my accent, I am a Brit residing uh, in the US and been here uh, over six years now, uh, and I really, you know, took on the role at Corksicle really because it was such an innovative, aspirational, design-led brand that had a unique point of difference in the marketplace. That's what really attracted me, and they were just really cool founders that that, that wanted to keep chasing ambition and change within the marketplace.
0: So, did you move? from the UK to Maine, and then from Maine to Orlando?
1: I did go, yes, yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's quite it. It sort of seems you're getting yeah, just a, a, a fun trajectory there. I imagine Orlando is a little bit warmer than Maine. Was that one of the reasons what, what made you think about Corsicle? <laughs> uh, at the time, no. But you know, I,
1: as I look back now, it's it's interesting because, you know, we love Maine. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful state, you know, particularly in the summer and fall months, but it, it gets somewhat chilly in, in the winter. So being able to move to Orlando and have heat all year round, and particularly at this time of the year, it's, it's glorious. There's a nice kind of marginal chill in the air. But uh, I, I definitely have enjoyed both states, you know, both Maine and, and Florida. Uh, and, you know, we've had the opportunity whilst we've been here as a family to travel much of the U.S. And it's just
0: it's it's
1: just been a great experience all around.
0: Absolutely. So, what's this Corksicle story? How did it get founded? Who are the two founders and how did they you end up getting tied in with them?
1: Yeah, I mean Corksels is a pretty cool company. It's it's based in Orlando. We're ten years old this year, which is which is great. It was founded by actually it was three individuals, and it started with kind of a almost like an icicle with a cork that went into a wine bottle to keep your wine bottle chilled, effectively to elevate that drinking experience. And since those days, cork School's really moved into the hydration uh, space, So whether that be mugs or. Tumblers or or sports bottles or canteens, as, as as we call them. So really looking at elevating that drinking experience to you know make sure that the drink is kept at the right temperature. Either the hot or cold but with really cool elevated designs and i think the core cool point of difference that Cork School has versus other competitors in the marketplace is it really pushes the design space it pushes the partnership space and it really wants to provide that elevated experience so that's where the brand ultimately moved under the 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 owners and the founders all the owners and founders are still in the business which is really cool uh Yeah, two of them are in my leadership team, which is great. And then one is still serving as chairman of the business. So to have their passion and drive and energy for the business within the business. uh, And it just sets such a a vibrant and entrepreneurial culture. So um, it's moved on a lot from its original days 10 years ago. Now, as I think about the size and scale of the company and and some of those partnerships, but that DNA of innovation and pushing those boundaries really lives true every day within the business.
0: So just for context for, for the listeners, what is the size and scale of the company now?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't want to give absolute data. You know, we're, uh, should we say, close to 100 million as a, as a business. Uh, we have close to 100 em- employees. Uh, most of our businesses within the U.S., we do have a, a sizable international uh, business, uh, which we're growing and e- expanding. Uh, uh, but as a business, you know, we are growing um very dynamically uh, at the moment uh, as the kind of whole sector that serves either that outdoor athleisure industry uh, is. And we're definitely finding as we look at our growth trajectory that where we've pushed the boundaries of design and where we've pushed those partnerships really hard They're just doing it exceptionally well. We we just released our Marvel capsule last week, which was awesome. It's really cool designs, and that's almost sold out already. It's just it's it's been an incredible journey as we've brought on board those great partnerships to really drive and differentiate the brand.
0: I'm guessing this was before you joined, but was the idea from the beginning, even when it was just one item that was meant, you know, to be to be a wine chiller, was the idea that it would branch out to all of these other categories and be be sort of a dynamic and expanding company, or was that just sort of a test, see what happens and go from there, sort of strategy.
1: Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, you've probably spoken to many people, but sometimes there's happy accidents, you know. And I, I think initially, you know, as the, the, the first expansions were made, it was probably more of a happy accident. But now, as we think about the trajectory of the brand, and we, t- we talk about as a business about elevating every sip and bite. So how do we bring a point of difference that makes that eating or drinking moment more elevated, more aspirational? So it gives the, the brand a DNA that allows you to go into multiple categories. So there's certainly more of an identity now that defines where the brand will go. But I guess what has stayed true throughout is um, a really driven and passionate commitment from the entire organization. And we have great designers and, and, and fantastic people in the, the the marketing department. How do we make sure we keep that elevated look, that elevated design that makes the brand more aspirational and more unique than our competitive set, either through our core designs or through partnerships or indeed through our, how we think about pushing new decoration techniques, which is something we continuous, try, continuously try to do. So.
0: so when did partnerships first become part of the formula? Um. I mean, probably to its true DNA,
1: cow. it probably four or five years ago, I'd say, you know, where we established some great partnerships with brands like Rifle Paper, Paper Company that are an ongoing partner and a great partner uh, for us. Uh, and then we started getting kind of more expansive with our partnerships. We launched this year, you know, a strategic partnership with Disney, which is huge for us. You know, you think about the scale of a brand of Disney and we, we've we launched Star Wars collections and now more lastly, the Marvel uh, collection. We do partnerships with brands like Kith and Yves Saint Laurent and Vineyard Vine. So, the, the the brand partnerships, uh, uh, and then we have artist partnerships. So, you know, we've done extensive partnerships this year with Kareem Rashid. We've done Basquiat, uh, and we'll be looking at another partnership next year. So we either have them at an elevated artistic perspective or a big commercial property, or sometimes, you know, it, it's much more about a property that's just equity building for both brands. So we t- try to think about the partnerships in a very strategic uh, way. And we probably, I, um, I'm going to say, we probably get contacted about fifty or sixty partnerships per annum. But we're very selective in our partnerships, both mm-hmm. for our brand, but also for the brand that, uh, that that we partner with.
0: When you joined, was was it kind of your mandate to sort of jumpstart that part of the business? Was that already going? Sort of, what what were your first priorities when you entered the door and said, "All right, I'm I'm going to help scale this company."
1: Yeah, I mean, first of all, I mean, coming into the company, it's always great to have the backing of the company, the backing of we have do have private equity investors, and then obviously the founders. And I really felt that coming into the business, that support and that belief and that ambition for change. It was interesting, to be fair, coming into the business, because it was right at the start of the pandemic. So you know everything was kind of blowing up. Uh, And I think the first thing in coming into the business was finding where stability was and really making sure that the business was fundamentally sound. And at the time, the mantra was, how do you get through the pandemic from in terms of scale of assortment, scale of investment, how you manage the dynamics of the supply chain. Now, the philosophy has definitely changed is how do we ambitiously chase more growth? So what we've done during that time Frame is we've doubled down on innovation, we've doubled down on designs, we've scaled our partnerships beyond where we wanted to initially because we believe that we'll just keep innovating and designing through this, which is fine in principle in terms of it's great to have that philosophy and and that ambition and that drive. But the challenge is now can we get the product? Can we get the right assortment? Can we manufacture it? Can we inbound that inventory? How much is it going to cost? So We've try to make sure we we lead with an innovation design, scale, move into new category I, but at the same time, we're having to be very thoughtful, very, very diligent, very agile around how do we get the assortment and inventory to support that.
0: What was pre-pandemic right when you came in? What was the the di- I guess the distribution makeup? Was it mostly in retail stores? and has that changed dramatically because of the e-commerce acceleration we've all witnessed for the last year and a half?
1: Yeah, I mean, we have an incredibly uh, um, diverse channel mix as a business, but we still have a a big share within independent gift and retail across the wholesale channel which we see as a real strength of our business so a having presence in that channel which is ostensibly kind of retail and uh, both independent retail and key account retail uh, but at the same time we do have a fast-growing um, e-commerce uh, business uh, and what we're trying to do as a business is make sure we have a diversified channel mix and we actually try grow all channels so we look at the business this year we are growing across all channels, some in more dynamic growth uh, than others. But one of the kind of missions coming into the business is how do you scale and grow the business through innovation, through assortment, productivity, through moving into new categories, but how do you do that across a diversified channel mix, uh, both in terms of you know, driving the exposure and presence of the brand, but also just mitigating some uh, some, some risks. So uh, I definitely say, that one of the hardest things during this entire time has been how based on the availability of the assortment how do we balance that across our channel mix to making make sure we're being responsible and thoughtful to all our partners
0: so can you walk me through that what have what have been the most I guess the most tenuous pressure points that you 've seen with with what what's has or has not been available, and how have you been sort of navigating that? Has it been that you have a cup shortage and so you 've been focusing on another product or what have you what have you been seeing there? Yeah, I think one
1: of the first things we did was we tried to prioritize our assortment, so we looked at what we deemed a b c. D velocity line, So we, we mapped out assortment and then we tried to prioritize availability across what we call those key value items. So we knew across the trade that there was going to be a critical mass across those key value items. And that's where we try to put all our effort in terms of production and uh, and, and supply chain. But invariably what happens is you go through and you try to say, I'm going to make sure those A to B items as much as possible are fully available across all channels. That was, that was kind of the... Uh, the intent, it's the old 80-20 rule. Mm-hmm. What's really happened throughout this is things don't quite flow as you intend with some of the challenges around both the cost and the availability of you know containers and, and boats and then some of the production challenges uh, in China so what we've had to do is just keep I'll be honest really open lines of communication so rather than put our head in the sand we're just really open with our retail partners this is when it's coming in this is the best we can do this is what will be available what we try and do is make sure that the releases happen in tandem across all channels so we're treating all channels Channels equally. So I'd say it's been a blend of agility uh, and, and open communication with our retailers to make sure that we're making them aware of what's coming when. What that has meant for DTC is we've had to run a really, really dynamic content calendar. So if I think about this quarter, for instance, which we all know, you know, it's the peak selling quarter. It's a critical quarter in terms of overall business performance. What we've had to do during this is literally have mapped out content by day and then we've had to have a contingency content calendar based on the availability of product where we feed in different content units predicated on what's available and what assortment we're deep we're deep in it's meant across all elements of that dtc media mix and that performance stack we've had to be incredibly agile and dynamic and even so just today,
0: yeah. So, just so I'm understanding, with with DTC, given that you know you have your retail partnerships and you know supplies are tight, there are a lot of shortages. Are you finding that you're you're focusing on your DTC on the things that you you are in, uh, you have the most quantity of that you're not necessarily beholden to the retailers for?
1: Yeah. I mean. Broadly on the items that we're putting on DTC, we broadly have availability in retail. That's how we try to, to run. Mm-hmm. And what we're trying to do is double down the content on where we are deep. Uh, Got it. And then as we flow newness in, so and we were flowing newness every day at the moment because of just how inbound inventory flows have been stacked up. So we're we're artificially creating a significant newness bubble now for us in November, which would have ideally flowed in September. So, as we flow that newness, what we're doing around the content calendar for e-commerce is we we're then plugging and playing the right content and the right focus across the performance media stack and across our. Our uh, big network of influencers and ambassadors. So, uh, so,
0: yeah. So, can you talk a little about what what is this content? Is it mostly influencer, especially when it's so dynamic and often with you know highly produced content? It takes a lot of time and energy, and so if you have to shut that off, that probably you know it sucks. Probably. So, uh, how how are you approaching that? Are you doing quicker and easier, you know, user generated sort of things, or are you doing how? how what is the overall content strategy w- w- given things are so tight?
1: Yeah, I mean. We Certainly, as we look at our, our stack of investment, we have we have a, a really dedicated and committed set of influencers and ambassadors. So we have developed or they have developed content with us. And then we're basically saying to them, based on the content developed, this is what we want fed to, to make sure it's in line you know, with uh, what we have available. Then we have developed a whole stack of content. Uh, content, whether it be dynamic or static content, you know, uh, for all of what we call those key value items. And what we're tending to do, particularly across paid social, is we're feeding in those content units as we have the availability. And then what we're trying to do is really drive hard the productivity of those content units. And then when typically what we're trying to do as we're investing, we think about how we're looking to optimize search and invest invest in paid search, we're doubling down again, based on where we have availability of that item. So it, it really Really is uh, probably in all my time the most dynamic and agile we've had to be with what we say building out a calendar and then plugging and playing investment in line with what you have available. Uh, but we're we're blessed. We've got a, a good mix across you know paid search across paid social influencer ambassadors and we're actually experimenting this year with you know some uh, some TV you know, connected TV in terms of building out a few small campaigns uh, there.
0: We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. I know a lot of DTC brands have been looking into connected TV, specifically given iOS changes and Facebook CPMs going up, though connected TV is quite expensive, as I understand it. But what are you seeing there? Is that actually converting? Are people responding to it? Yeah, I mean, we, we obviously
1: ran some A-B tests earlier in the year because we wanted to understand how it would perform. Uh, we mm-hmm. saw really high conversion and productivity out of it. So we're only looking to really ramp that now so we'll be scaling that over the next eight weeks but we, we we're certainly seeing high levels of return there so we're, we're significantly double downing in that space also we're, we're seeing some good productivity and you know kind of investment across the the kind of paid social stack we are seeing if you generate the right content around the right product and obviously we've done a lot of audience profiling and targeting we are seeing some strong productivity there
0: what are you do you index more on Instagram? Is that sort of where things most resonate on the social front or what 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 works, would you say? It's pretty
1: much across the social stack, I'd say, you know, Facebook and Instagram. Uh, we we're interesting as a brand because we're quite a female centric. Uh, uh, brand, uh, you know, just because of the nature of our designs and positioning, we're, and we're trying to broaden that footprint. And as we broaden the footprint, we've done a lot of work this year around much deeper segmentation of our customer to understand them. So we've done proper kind of life cycle segmentation, LTV analytics, which is great. But what that really gives us is much better capability around audience targeting and profile going into peak. So we've definitely got more forensics behind that this year to hopefully give us that capability, both in terms of returning that retention customer and getting the LTV, but also really driving customer acquisition.
0: How do the partnerships fit into this marketing plan, especially when you're dealing with you know, a partnership like Marvel, which is a different type of uh, audience than potentially your your usual uh, customer, are are you relying on usually the partners themselves to handle a lot of the marketing? Are you doing it as well? How how do you navigate that? Um, or or, and is, or are, when you're doing your content calendar, isn't mostly just on the Corksicle branded items?
1: That's a great question, Kelly. Actually, I mean. It's a it's a good mix, and the partnerships are really designed to, to your observation, they really extend the customer footprint of corks and, and move us into different audiences. But we will only ever do that. I mean, you, you can look online at the, the Star Wars and Marvel designs we have are so thoughtful, considered, intelligent, they feel so elevated. We don't ever just badge a product, we only launch a product with our partners that feel genuinely. Elevated. So having that core DNA and then tapping into that audience that a Marvel brings or a Star Wars brings or a rifle paper brings really broadens that footprint, but always through that elevated aspirational design eye. And a lot of our investment, so to speak, in those partnerships is led through Corksicle. So we don't have a dependency on our partner. We get great support from our partners. They feed it across their channels. And no doubt that really broadens the... Uh, the umbrella and appeal of our brand, but we certainly invest a lot in driving those partnerships pretty hard from the Corkscrew end.
0: Do you? I mean, when you're dealing with Disney, like how 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 involved are they with the design, and how involved are you with the design? I imagine they try to keep as much control as they possibly can, given that they're Disney. But your, your design is very important to you as a as a brand, and so how do you walk that line when you're dealing with such a behemoth of a company?
1: first of all it's worth it is really worth acknowledging they are a phenomenal partner. they have been awesome uh, and it's really felt like a genuine mutual partnership as we've built this strategic alliance and now we're executing some some incredible partnerships and they definitely have a a really respectful and thoughtful design DNA to Disney, which is what makes Disney so great as a brand and as an organization. But what we found throughout the process is because we have such a unique interpretation of design, when we build out a capsule, whether it be a Star Wars or a Marvel, they really trust us. And they let us do the designs. We have certain check-in points. But I'd say that, you know, the level of trust and belief and support and then endorsement of the, the 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 designs we bring to market, it's phenomenal. We we couldn't want. I in, in, I genuinely mean this. We couldn't want for a better design partnership in terms of how we build build both brands together.
0: Got it. And so let's talk about actual product expansion, not just partnerships. So you know, you've Corksicle has expanded the types of products it's made over the last decade, going from you know, a wine cooler, two cups, to many different things. So how do you decide where it is that you expand into? Are there any things that you would think are far afield of the brand, but still are core to to what you're about? How how do you make those decisions?
1: Yeah, I think, um, again, defining those parameters is always important because it's as, it's as important to know what you stand for as what you don't stand for to that question. I think where we got to is we've got a very, D- defined brand positioning, which is really about transforming and elevating those everyday sip and bite moments. So we're about the eating and drinking occasion and how do you elevate them in an aspirational design way? So that sets a parameter. Mm-hmm. We have eight product verticals. So we have eight areas of innovation stroke category expansion that we have identified. Obviously, I will not say what those are on on this. And within those eight verticals, what we've done is mapped out an innovation pipeline for the next three years where we know what we're putting into each one of those uh, verticals. Uh, and then basically what we do is say, as we look at those verticals, we then think about what is going to be the nature of the color design partnership assortment that we bring into those verticals as we design into those verticals. Uh, and a c- couple of good examples of moving into some new hydration space is we launched two new products this year. We launched a kid's <laughs> cup, which, you know, since we launched, we have not been in stock. It's just sold out kind of, uh, and that's basically, Could we find a way of bringing the great Corkscrew design into the kids arena? And then we launched a a new commuter cup. So it was basically a ceramic lined uh, hydration vessel, which had a push 360 degree firm closed lid. So you'd push the lid down, it would be open. You'd push it down again. It would seal close to be 100% spill proof. So it was called a commuter cup. And it also had a ceramic liner to enhance the kind of coffee and tea taste, depending on when you're, whether you're a coffee or a tea drinker. So they're a good example of how we looked at the category and thought we can move into different kind of usage occasions and different demographics. And you'll see more of that next year as we look at genuine, what I'd call adjacent category innovation in line with those eight product verticals.
0: When you expand into these new verticals, are you still keeping the core retail channels in mind so are will all of these be able to be sold in independent mom and pop retailers that you've sold in traditionally or are you thinking into new areas new channels you know all that yeah again it's
1: it's a really personal question cuz it's the one we have a a lot of conversation around we see that most of the innovation we bring to market will be kind of across all our channels. Uh, So we will make it available. Part of what we want to do in partnership with our retailers is really think about that assortment planning. So what's the most productive assortment you can have and help them prioritize those key value items to make sure they are driving that sales velocity and that margin velocity to them. So it puts much more onus on us planning in partnership with our retailers. Uh, as we think about outside of e-commerce, you know, we are working very strongly on retail representation, retail merchandising, re, you know, visual uh, visual planning. And then as we think about the e-commerce spaces, how do we optimize the customer journey such that we can take customers into multiple categories? And therefore, how do we drive conversion into multiple purchases? So we're being very thoughtful as we expand into those verticals about optimizing that customer journey to maximize, you know, units per basket and our average order value.
0: So. And so let's go into the year to come. Right now for for the rest of Q4, it's about being agile with, you know, your your marketing and your contact calendar, hope making sure, you know, the most important items are in stock and retail partners are happy. What what do you see happening in 2022? Will it still be the same sort of un- uncertainty? Will will there be, you know, w- what do you see happening and what are your ambitions in terms of growth?
1: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I, I, I certainly don't have a crystal ball. I can give you a perspective on 2022. Yeah. You know, we, we have a very ambitious growth agenda next year. We're continuing to look to accelerate at the kind of very high uh, double-digit growth figures we're experiencing this year. You'll see us move into new categories next year. You'll see us expand into new partnerships. And you'll see us bring out some incredible designs next year. So we, we know we're going to push the button that really drives and differentiates, differentiates us. As we look at that dynamic, uh, inventory will still be the core challenge. So production capacity in China because of some of the challenges around COVID and power supplies, and then just the availability of boats and containers and and port resources. We see that continue into next year, uh, well into next year. We think third, fourth quarter next year, we still won't be in a full state of recovery. So as we plan our business, we're saying, okay, we want ambitious growth. We've got you know, significant parts of the assortment coming out. We're trying to be very thoughtful around how do we place all our production and inventory buys even earlier. Uh, you know, if if we were buying forty percent of the first order up front, how does that become a seventy or eighty percent? So our in- entire production to buy to receipts strategy it has to be different and reflective of our current experiences so that will definitely evolve into next year and then the other thing that you know is real for all of us is input costs are going through the roof whether that's raw material costs uh, whether that's production uh, costs, whether that's decoration costs, and then obviously freight costs. So, you know, we're definitely looking at what's the right balance of price to cost next year. Obviously, we won't be in a position to pass, pass on all of costs through pricing because that would be untenable in terms of, you know, the price dynamics. But getting that costing to pricing equation right, I think is going to be a challenge for all brands and retailers next year. And I, I do think as a as a kind of, as a global economy so to speak we will certainly go through a a period of very aggressive inflation going into next year because i don't think everybody has passed through the, the the cost increases yet i think we'll we'll see that go into kind of quarter one next year
0: wow have you raised your prices yet uh not uh, across the
1: board no uh we are looking at the best time to take those price increases to be respective and responsible to retailers so no, we certainly have not got into anywhere near cost recovery yet through through pricing so that's something we're deep in conversations around and, and i i would anticipate gail that most businesses are having very meaningful robust conversations around pricing currently
0: All right. Well, Chris, this has been such a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for joining.
1: Thank you, Kel. Nice to see you as ever. Take care, sir.
0: And thank you for listening to this episode of the Modern Retail Podcast, a show by Digiday. If you haven't already, please do subscribe and head to Apple Podcasts to leave us a review and a rating. See you next week.